If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be clever and cunning, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to... Do you have to play a cliche role to make a survivable character? And do you have to choose between smart mechanics and a role-playable character? And what is a must-have reference for every character build? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. And today we're talking about helping your character survive through whatever madness your DM throws your way. And honestly, we're not the best at this. We make (laughs) ridiculous characters not meant for combat. (laughs) Then we got to figure out how to make them live. Yeah, I think I've spent hours upon hours reading through optimization guides and, you know, comparing blue abilities with green abilities versus red abilities based on somebody else's opinion. Sometimes I get good results and other times uh, they fall a little flat. And sometimes I'm just sitting there trying to figure out if I'm going to go that survivalist route or the fanciful role play during combat in every moment. Yeah, I, it's it's hard to really marry those two together sometimes because I feel like if you're focused on tactics, then you're probably not focused on the other side. And my last character build was purely, how do I make the spookiest character? <laughs> I didn't care about damage, didn't care about effects. I just wanted to be spooky. Well, all of this to say, we are so excited to have Keith Amon join us again for this episode. Keith is the creator of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, the wildly popular online blog. And the book of the same title, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters. So Keith is here to help us today uh, figure out how to marry all of this stuff together and get it straight in our heads. Welcome, Keith. Thank you very much for having me back. How has the book release been going so far? Uh, It's been going pretty well. It's selling briskly. I am happy to say (laughs) there were lots and lots of pre-orders, which makes both me and my publisher feel really good. Awesome. It's doing even slightly better than the Monsters Know What They're Doing did when that book first came out. So feeling pretty good about it. The legions of loyal fans are happy, it sounds like. <laughs> or the desperate players of the DMs who bought my first book and are trying to keep their characters from getting knocked off. That's what I'm talking about. I don't think you could have laid this out any more brilliantly if you'd tried. You created that need from the players. And you are known from The Monsters Know What They're Doing for arming DMs with the most rational, realistic, and ruthless take on monsters. They're so well thought out. I assume that this is your peace offering to the uh, the players of the world who, like you said, are kind of getting trounced. That is that is exactly what it is. And actually, an earlier version of Live to Tell the Tale existed even before the book The Monsters Know What They're Doing came out because I had been working on the blog for a while and started getting feedback from DMs who were fans of the blog and who started saying, thanks for helping me get my first TPK. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not what we were going for here. (laughs) Uh, We were trying to make the combat run more smoothly and feel more realistic and make sure we were getting the full value out of the challenge rating. It wasn't about killing the players. But, you know, when you're running the monsters in a way that reflects the monster's own effectiveness with their own abilities, you need to oppose those monsters with players who have that same kind of confidence and competence with their abilities. Uh, and, And a lot of players don't have that. You know, they may have very strong characters, but if those characters aren't being piloted, you might say, in effective ways, then they're not going to reflect the full capability of those characters. And they're going to take risks. And some of those risks may not be wise risks. And so, yeah, I really wanted to give players 
the sort of education in player character tactics that I had given myself in monster tactics. And so in the earlier days of the blog, I wrote Live to Tell the Tale as an ebook, which I later expanded. Uh, so there were two self-published ebook editions. And then when Saga Press picked up the Monsters Know What They're Doing, they also picked up Live to Tell the Tale as a trade book, provided that I expanded and revised it further. And so uh, there's a lot of material in the printed book that was never in the uh, self-published ebook versions. The ebook had three sample battles. I've written a fourth. I've revised the first three. Cleaned up a lot of mistakes in those battles. Who boy, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was cleaning up mistakes in those battles as late as the third proofs because keeping up with so many moving parts is hard. It is very, very hard. Even when you know what you're doing and know it cold, there is so much that you can just overlook. I rewrote some of those battles a dozen times or more. A lot of work went into getting those battles ready for publication. And you know what? I bet there's probably still a mistake in there somewhere <laughs> because you just cannot... I'm <laughs> I'm never writing one of those by myself again. I mean, well, I think that's why that we way. play with other people, I guess, eh? Yeah. Yeah. I think that just goes to show how easy it is to overlook the kind of tactics that you write about too. Cuz when you're there at the table, you're just like you're feeling that pressure if you haven't kind of thought about it before this moment. Well, yes. And and that's why thinking about it before the game session is so important. Actually sitting down on your own time, on your own, and, and going through and making some standing decisions about how your character is going to act under certain conditions is really important because it saves you cognitive load during the game session itself. You know, I mean, so much of my work is is about lightening the cognitive load so that that uh, battles can go more smoothly because if if you're trying to carry the entire load of all the decision making that you have to make uh, whether you're a DM or a player in the middle of a combat encounter you're going to lose track of so much you're going to you're going to miss things you could have done you're going to do things that just straight up don't make sense you know you're going to make blunders thinking about these things when you're not under pressure is a very important element in avoiding those kinds of blunders. Let's dive into more of that in the strategy stateroom. This is the strategy stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So we reached out to our Discord and Patreon community, and one of our patrons, Leprechaun, uh, at the hospitable hobgoblin level, thank you very much, Leprechaun, uh, provided us all of his characters. So he has a party that uh, we're going to analyze today of some of his players and some of the characters that show up at his table. And we're going to do that by breaking it down into a couple of steps um, so first, we're going to talk to Keith about understanding why your character wants to survive. Secondly, <laughs> we're going to look at analyzing ability contours and what ability contours are. Third, we're going to understand the role that they play in the party and know how to retreat and get yourself out of a scary situation when you need to. So let's start with our actual player character that we're going to do a little bit of an analysis on. So we've got Orion the Asimar Paladin, okay. who's got the Oath of Vengeance. He's got a two-handed weapon fighting style. He's got a strength and charisma-focused build, and he's dedicated to the destruction of evil in this plane and the next, accompanied by the voices of angels and others. That's pretty good. All right, so let's start with understanding why your character wants to survive. So for you, Keith, do you think a story-first <laughs> approach and optimizing tactics conflict? No, absolutely not. You know, there are a lot of people who have this notion that crunchy tactics and immersive role-playing are opposite ends of a spectrum, and they're not. You know, these are your two stats, role-playing and combat, and you can have high scores in both. 
I, I really see understanding your character's expertise as an aspect of role-playing. Because, you know, maybe you don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether it makes more sense in a certain situation to cast Scorching Ray or Fireball. But your wizard thinks about that a lot. It probably keeps your wizard up at night trying to figure out when does it make sense to cast Scorching Ray and when does it make sense to cast Fireball. And so you kind of owe it to them to step into their skin for a while and do some of that thinking yourself so that when the moment comes and they have to decide whether they're going to cast Scorching Ray or Fireball, they just know right there automatically which is the correct decision because they've already thought it through. Every activity, whether it's sports, music, dance, art, writing, that depends on disciplined, mindful practice. Every practitioner of one of those activities spends a lot of time basically just drilling themselves on fundamentals, you know, doing scales, doing sketches, writing in a journal, warm-ups on, on an athletic field, forms if you're, if you're doing martial arts, anything like that. You're always practicing the fundamentals to a point where they become automatic. So your characters being experts at what they do, because they are, you can presume that they also engage in a certain amount of this disciplined practice. And, and so by thinking about the ways to use their features, you're sharing that disciplined practice with them and helping them be more themselves. Because it, it's never about trying to make your character something they're not. It's always about making them the best them they can be. <laughs> and to your point, if I lived in a world with a beholder, knowing that that existed, <laughs> yeah, I'd be up all yeah. night. And I would be thinking about how do I survive this life? No kidding. Don't go into something like that without a plan. <laughs> you know what? Maybe your character is such personality-wise that they do go into that without a plan. But what they don't go into it without is experience and the lessons that they've learned from experience. By the time they're running into beholders, they have had enough life experience behind them that they know there are things that work and things that don't. And you want to get to that point. <laughs> you want them to survive to that point where they can get into that fight with a beholder and, and have a snowball's chance. Dying at level one is sort of an occupational hazard, but my <laughs> God, you do not want to die at level two or level three. That is really the worst. <laughs> like having your character killed right out of the gate. You know what? You're just the example. Okay. You're the, <laughs> you're the, you're the red shirt who got killed to show how dangerous, how dangerous it was for everyone else. But you know, once you get to level two or level three, now you're a little bit invested and that's when having your player character killed <laughs> and it probably means you did a little bit more poor planning to get them killed. Yeah. You have a big part in your book about analyzing ability contours and just understanding yes. what is your character's ability contour. So, uh, Which, if anyone's confused by that, that's a phrase I made up. So. <laughs> that's not like action economy, which is standard lingo that designers use and... and Hardcore players who analyze the game use. Ability contour is, is my own. Trademark. Yeah, Keith Alvin. <laughs> I present it to the world as a gift. <laughs> awesome. Well, what exactly is an ability contour? An ability contour is a pattern of high and low ability scores. And I arbitrarily define high as 14 or higher. I know there are a lot of people who, when they create their characters, it's like they can't imagine creating a, a fighter who's going to have less than 18 strength at the outset. And they're going to try to get it up to 20 by the end of the campaign. I don't care about that. <laughs> plus two, that's your cutoff. Do you have plus two in it or not? If you have more than that, it's high. If you have less than that, it's low. So every character needs to have a primary offensive ability, which is what they're using to dish out damage and a primary defensive ability, which is what they are using either to avoid it or take it. And having strength as your primary offensive ability and constitution as your primary defensive ability is your frontliner contour. Having dexterity as your primary defensive ability and then strength or dexterity 
as your primary offensive ability because dex is the one ability that can be both. Yeah, it kind of swaps depending on the character. Mm -hmm. That's a shock attacker who specializes in burst damage, doing a lot of damage at once and then getting out. You have the skirmisher whose primary offensive ability is dexterity, but whose primary defensive ability is constitution. They are a moderate damage attrition fighter. They are mobile. They have the ability to get in and out. They do steady damage over time. They don't mind a drawn-out fight, which contrasts them with the shock attacker who wants to do everything they can quickly and then retreat. Skirmishers can stay in the mix a little while, run from opponent to opponent, do some damage here, some damage there. A marksman is a special sort of shock attacker. They use dexterity as primary offense and primary defense, but they supplement it with wisdom for the sake of perception so that they can be a spotter, find hidden enemies and pick them off. And then the supporter is the medium range spellcaster who is occasionally going to take some hits because they're closer to the front. So their primary defensive ability is constitution. And then they're using a mental ability as their primary offensive ability. And then Finally, there's the Spell Slinger. Dex is the primary defensive ability, mental ability for primary offensive, and they are the long-range spellcasters. They are trying to stay far from the action and avoid damage and lob spells at long range. They are more about direct damage, whereas Supporter is more about buffing the party and keeping the front line propped up. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I think that helps clarify it a lot. If you didn't take something from that for your character, then uh, pay more attention. <laughs> so when you build a character, what order do you build characters in? What comes first in your mind? Is it the ability score or the character? Any order. I come at characters all kinds of ways. Sometimes I say, all right, I want to create a skirmisher. Other times I have a high concept. What would it be like to play an ugly paladin? <laughs> Other times, I'll start with a class race combo or a class background combo. Okay, so I've got a dragonborn rogue, and he's a sailor. What's that going to be like? I come at it every which way, and, and it really doesn't matter where you start. What matters is where you finish, which should be a place where your ability contour, the combat role that that ability contour recommends for you and your class are all working together in harmony okay so let's look at orion the paladin's ability contour he's got high strength and charisma okay uh, so just because strength and charisma are the two strongest does not mean you have to make those your primary abilities i mean you've you've got to have some primary defensive ability and some primary offensive ability strength and charisma is really a, a split primary offensive ability. So the question is, which is higher, the dex or the con? And is either of them at least 14? If it's at least 14, then you're probably going to be more or less okay. If it's 13 or lower, you need to compensate. Yeah. But if it's a matter of like, okay, uh, this character has strength 17, charisma 15, con 14. That's okay. means really your primary offensive ability is going to be strength. Your primary defensive ability is going to be constitution. Even though the charisma is also very high, you're going to build your character's behavior around strength and con. So strength and con as, as primary offensive and primary defensive is with frontliner contour. Someone who's going to be up in the front, dealing damage, drawing aggro soaking up the hits they're going to be as armored as they can get away with and they're going to be engaging in melee doing direct damage and not moving around very much they're going to be absorbing damage more than trying to avoid it so that's your basic frontliner behavior now if that constitution really is below 14 
you're going to have kind of a, uh, a very, very weird hybrid role. You're going to have to build it around the fact that this character doesn't have much in the way of defense. And that's a serious liability. And they have to sort of come up with their own style that accounts for that liability. <laughs> you could even make a character that had a bit of a death wish and <laughs> took some, some serious risks. You could. The other party members might tire of that before long. <laughs> no, but, kidding, uh, yeah. you could. But you know, the thing is, is a character with a death wish really going to be all that interesting no. in the long term? Because <laughs> you want them to have goals, you want them to have storylines. They've got to be around for those storylines to play out, you know? So if nothing else, keep your character alive so that their stories can end with resolution rather than anticlimactic death. It's more or less the antithesis of live to tell the tale. <laughs> it is precisely the antithesis. <laughs> with these different ability contours, that really tells you your position in the party. like Figuratively and literally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, it, it tells you the part you're playing, but it also tells you where you should situate yourself and how much you should be moving around. So frontliners, marksmen, Spell slingers are less mobile. Supporters are moderately mobile. They need to be able to get up to the front line and back, but they don't have to be super duper mobile. Skirmishers are super duper mobile. So are shock attackers because shock attackers want to get into melee and then get out. Skirmishers want to be able to go to whatever opponent needs their attention at the moment. It's it's sort of like your combat Myers Briggs type, you know. <laughs> instead of except instead of are you an extrovert or introvert? Are you relying on sensing or intuition? It's are you doing melee attacks or ranged attacks? Are you relying on weapons or spells? Are you mobile or stationary? And are you avoiding damage or absorbing it? I think you should trademark that phrase as well. Uh, your combat personality, combat Myers Briggs. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what you've done <laughs> with this book. And I just want to point out that in the book, you both explain it like you've been doing, but you also included very handy point form visual representations of these ideas. So no matter what way you want to absorb this information, it's in that book. And part of the challenge that I, I find, especially with new players, is there is that divorcing of the idea of what kind of character do I want to play and what is my like combat style that I would really enjoy? Do I want to roll a lot of dice and sit in the back? Do I want to roll a lot of dice and sit in the front? Do I want to be mobile and run around? And nobody really tells you that. Yeah, the combat rule can be part of your personality. If you're playing an in-your-face kind of character, Frontline is a natural role for you, and you should make the kind of choices as you create that character that are going to be suitable for a frontline fighter and an effective frontline fighter. You know, if you're a helping kind of personality, then build that character as a supporter and make them good at that so that they can express their personality in that way, as well as through your voices and catchphrases and uh, past traumas. To me, it's really powerful that concept of being a supporter, to realize how detrimental you're actually being to your party when you run to the front to tank because you just <laughs> feel like it that day. You can do it, but just realize what you're doing to that combat. Well, the worst thing is when spell slingers run up to the front. That, that never ends well. <laughs> no, everyone else just... They should Face be palms. hiding behind a rock. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah with, with full cover. Yeah fragile flowers and i always see that with new groups is folks that don't that aren't very experienced with with D D, and this can always be either a hit to the ego or just a really bitter first lesson to learn if you're starting off in D D and you're just getting used to how this all works is when a table of new players combat breaks out and all like six of them rush to the front to tank the <laughs> and you're like whoa what are you doing Remember we talked about the fact that that spell has a 60-foot range? <laughs> you don't need to. It's like in a baseball game. If somebody uh, hit a double out to right field and every single player infield <laughs> and outfield all ran toward right field at once, that, that's not going to make any sense. That's the know? best example. They're going to round the bases by the time you uh, get everyone back in place. <laughs> Everyone's got a hand on the ball trying to throw it at the same time. Well, that's great. Um but speaking of that, so know how to retreat. 
um, when things do start to go south, there's this whole idea. I've seen this a lot in games. One player goes down and everyone says, we're good. I can get get them up. Let me go do that. And then another player goes down and it starts to become this like, who's going to go Cascade. first? Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to be the chicken? We're done with this fight. (laughs) Well, you've got two basic errors when you realize that you're beginning to lose the fight. One is refusing to retreat at all. The other is retreating in a haphazard way that doesn't make sense. And there are three actions in 5th edition D&D that are basically all retreat actions. They're all the kinds of things that you want to use when you are trying to get away from a fight. And those are dodge, dash, and disengage. So dodge is you are juking around trying to make it harder for them to hit you. Dash is just hell for leather running. And disengage is trying to execute an orderly retreat so that they don't get an opportunity attack against you on your way out. Each one of them is suitable for different characters, different situations. Knowing which one to use can be a little bit complicated, but it mostly depends on your armor class, how many opponents you are engaged in melee with, and whether or not any of them has extra attack or multi-attack. And then in certain situations, you also have the considerations of whether they're likely to pursue you or just let you go, and whether any of them is invisible. Because invisibility just shuts down dodge. One of the weirdly counterintuitive things is that dodge helps more heavily armored characters more than it helps lightly armored characters. It's just the mathematics of advantage and disadvantage. If you have a high armor class, like say above 15, 15 is sort of the inflection point, then dodge is going to work well for you. If you have an armor class below 14, it's not going to make enough difference for you to help. You're more likely to get hurt on your way out if you try to dodge when your armor class is too low. You feel like the rogue in leather ought to be able to dodge more easily than the paladin in plate, but it is the opposite. Right on. So it sounds like having the right strategy actually gets everybody out pretty safely in most (laughs) situations, which isn't my normal experience. (laughs) So how do players go about role-playing this conversation? Does it have to be an out-of-game kind of metagame discussion, or do you think that that can actually be incorporated into role-playing as that whole, hey, let's uh, GTFO? The, the key thing is you come up with your rules for how your character is going to retreat. Because not everyone has to do it the same way. Not everyone wants to do it the same way. You come up with the rules for your character. I'm going to use dash in this situation, disengage in these situations, and I'm never going to dodge. Okay, now you have a standing rule in place. That makes sense. Then during the game session, all you need is someone to yell, run! And everyone knows how they need to run, okay? Use your maximum movement away and choose one of these three actions. Let's go through a a short example. We have the rest of the party here to talk about a couple of the ability contours and then just where Orion, our primary character here that we're analyzing, uh, sits among and what role they should play among the rest of their party. So the rest of the party is Cassian Bombard, a human storm sorcerer, who is a glass cannon who dreams of being a self-made man but has the fortitude of tissue paper. We have Abbott, or Lord Costello, great pun there, tiefling glamour bard who knows that the greatest weapon is the mouth and the words that can talk people in and out of anything. You got Xander Fulcor, who is a human life cleric. Though proven innocent of the crimes he's accused of, he seeks to redeem himself but his curiosity leads him into unknown dangers. And Alderaan, the wood elf swashbuckler rogue, who's always looking for opportunities to take advantage of any situation by wit or by blade. So we've got a human storm sorcerer, a glamour bard, a cleric, and a rogue, along with our strength and charisma-based Azamar paladin. Okay. 
Step one, of course, is assuming they all want to live. Check. <laughs> We've done that. Uh, step two is the ability contours. So Right. Which I can't, without seeing the actual ability scores, I can't really say, okay, this person should be X, this person should be Y, this person should be Z. But when you told me their classes and subclasses, I'll tell you what came to mind. The Storm Sorcerer, Spell Slinger, and when you said he was a glass cannon, that's basically what Spell Slingers are. So there's no question about that. Cassian is a spell slinger. Abbott, uh, Abbott's role depends on whether they chose uh, dexterity or constitution as their primary defensive ability, because their primary offensive ability is clearly going to be charisma. Um, I think most likely a glamour bard is going to find themselves in the support role because their auras favor they're taking up a very central position yeah so that they can extend it to everybody but that's no guarantee they might be a uh they might be a spell slinger who just needs to make sure they're within 60 feet of everybody xander life cleric quintessential support and uh alderaan the swashbuckler rogue is tailor-made for the skirmisher role okay they can be shock attackers but shock attackers are more like your assassins. Swashbucklers are more likely to be skirmishers because they've got some great abilities that let them dip in and out of melee. Also, their rakish audacity lets them go anywhere they want and still have a way to get sneak attack. It's it's win-win for them. Either they go right up alongside the frontliner and stab the distracted enemy. Ha-ha! You know, the normal way of using sneak attack, which is you have an ally within five feet of your enemy, or they can run off to the isolated opponent and be the only one within five feet of that opponent themselves and get sneak attack damage from that. Uh, and plus, wood elves are faster than other characters. They've got that 35-foot movement speed. So Alderaan is going to be a magnificent skirmisher, which leaves Orion. Now, in a party of five, I would usually suggest... There should be two frontliners. There are not two frontliners in this group. There's not even necessarily one frontliner unless he's got that constitution at 14 or higher. He can play that frontline role. If it's not, we're going to need to come up with some <laughs> uh, unique strategies for this group. Invest in adamantine. Well, adamantine only protects you from crits. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Other than that, it's no better than any other kind of armor. He might have to play a sort of a quasi-shock attacker role uh, and try to do a lot of damage at once and then get out. But the trouble is, when the paladin gets out, there is really no one else to be on the front line. So I think this is going to have to be a party that dedicates itself to finishing battles very fast. They are all going to have to find ways to work together to maximize damage and maximize the speed at which they deliver it because they are not going to be... Um, well, I, I take that back. You have two supporters and a skirmisher, so there is some staying power here. The supporters can can try to keep Orion in particular, but the party in general propped up. The skirmisher can go where they're needed, and Orion can save up for a suit of plate mail and then go out there and just try to tough it out on the front line for as long as he can and then get out. Now, I just had a thought pop into my head. Is Orion one of those kinds of Asimar that can fly? Ooh, dang. That's a... Game Great question. Yeah, that, that totally changed <laughs> because things. Because that might help make him harder to hit. It might not. But suppose I'm going to have to look at what Asimar can do. We're going to take a brief break while <laughs> our guest looks up the Asimar race. <laughs> I love how uh, you just can't turn away from analyzing a party. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to... I love it. Yeah, I yeah. love the depth that we're... This is the Protector SMR. Starting at third level, you can use your action to unleash the divine energy within yourself, causing your eyes to glimmer and two luminous incorporeal wings to sprout out from your back. 
Your transformation lasts for one minute or until you end it as a bonus action. During it, you have a flying speed right, of 30 yeah. feet. All right. So put this paladin in some heavy armor, give them a pole arm, and have them fly. Oh, man. 10 feet in the air. And call him Mr. Pokey, because Jesus, that sounds terrifying. That's great. That is how <laughs> you keep this paladin from taking so much damage that he's going to keel over in round two. But that being said, this is not a stunt you can pull all the time. This requires a long rest to reset, so you can only do this once per day. This is something to pull out of your pocket at a crucial moment. This is not something you can do in every battle. Yeah. But it's... Uh, it's a little trick you can add to your repertoire. So I would suggest to this paladin that at level four, whoa, they're going to have a tough choice to make between increasing their constitution and picking up the polearm master feet so that they can get the oppo attack when the enemy comes within reach of the polearm. It's going to be a balancing act. It's going to be a real balancing act, and they're going to have to have a tight relationship with their supporters. But nothing's a more paladin move than surprising your enemy by dropping from above with a polearm and a halo <laughs> oh, of light. it would be glorious. <laughs> yeah. It would be pretty glorious. There's no question about that. Well, cool. Correct me if I'm wrong, but another tactic after reading your book that I thought might be good for this party would be some of those spellcasters taking some debilitating spells. That would be very good. Another thing is maybe your spellslinger at some point wants to pick up haste and use that on the paladin. That could be helpful also. It would it would allow that paladin to uh, finish things up a lot faster. I don't really talk about this much in the book, and, and I kind of wish I had. Um, the idea of creating a party playbook is something people should give some thought to. Figuring out ways in which party members can cover for one another's weaknesses give each other advantage, especially if you've got a rogue in your party. You want to set that rogue up for the spike. You want to, you know, maybe have a battle master who can do a trip attack or a cleric who can cast hold person or a druid who can cast entangle, things like that that are going to create sources of attack roll advantage that the rogue can then exploit so that they can gain sneak attack. Now, in this party, that's not quite as important because your rogue is a swashbuckler, and so they have greater ability to land sneak attacks than most other rogues do. But if the rogue in your party is a thief or an assassin, a mastermind, an inquisitive, a scout, you want to give them that little prezi every round if you can. Now, it sounds to me like you're almost uh, suggesting what I think is sacrilege in that when you're choosing your next abilities and spells for your next level, that you shouldn't just consider yourself, but potentially what could support your party. Is that sacrilege? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. But, you know, but, but that those decisions are also part of role playing. Yeah. You know, so there are feats. It's, it's never going to give you combat advantage to take the actor feat, but if it would be right for your character to be an actor, make him an actor. You're not under any obligation to min-max from level two and up <laughs> any more than you were at character creation. You, you never have to do that. It's always okay to make a decision about your characters solely for role-playing reasons, because that's what this game is all about. It's, it's living inside this other character's skin. Yeah. But if this character is the kind of character who's interested in currying favor with the rogue, then yeah, <laughs> maybe you want to maybe you come up with a way to help them out. And, you know, maybe down the line they give you uh, that little uh, magic item that they didn't tell anyone else they yeah, picked up. A little more of their share of treasure that they've <laughs> stored in their boots. I think, like you said, I think this is the kind of role playing that characters can easily do in the tavern rather than... You know, going instantly to let's get shit faced <laughs> or let's gamble. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Especially if you have a character. Uh, I mean, if you've got a battle master fighter in the party, oh, they're always going to be trying to tell people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 
Well, right on. What we'll do now is we'll head on over to the Temple of Inspired Hands to talk a little bit more about this book. I, I think we've given this party at this point a pretty cool leg up um, with a personal analysis from Keith Allman. And yeah, let's hear more about that book in Temple of Inspired Hands. This is the Temple of Inspired Hands, where amazing products and revolutionary ideas are brought to light. Keith, as a, as a new player, and say I want to dive into building a rogue. Now, if I were to go online and try and look up tips for building rogues, what I'm going to find is a laundry list of different optimization guides um, on some Reddit forum. They're great and all, but they really leave out a lot of that that flavor. And it it's just about which abilities are going to be the best for kind of a broad scope. And your book takes a really easy and approachable vantage point on kind of more of a holistic kind of role playing. Hey, this is how you play this role really freaking well, um, because that's what your character would likely want to do. I like how everything that I've heard in this episode so far has been in this book of tactics. Like <laughs> you can use everything that Keith has said to design your characters. Yeah. And like every permutation of all of these different classes, like they're somehow covered in a 70 page book uh, <laughs> with, you know, tactics and ideas and like uh, combat scenarios that run through all of those different levels like you well it is more than 70 pages now it's it's 200 some but yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right can we talk about the cover oh i can't talk enough about the cover i love the cover it i mean i got emotional just looking at the cover it's done by leo pressland and it tells like on the cover itself if you haven't seen it it's got a party telling the story in some tavern with a lot of trophy heads on the wall and then a framed photo of the younger versions of this adventuring party. And it's just, it's everything in one image of what you want a great campaign to feel like. It it also happens to be the exact same party that's getting their butts kicked repeatedly in every single illustration and the (laughs) monsters know what they're doing. It's the same characters. That's great. They made it out the other side. Did you create that just for the art or was that based on a party? I created those characters just for the art. They are not uh, representative of any party that that I've played in a game with as a player or as a DM. I just just wanted to, to throw together a party that was interesting that had some balance and some diversity and um uh and i i really liked the cover of the monsters know what they're doing but i am in sloppy love with the cover (laughs) of uh live to tell the tale it just it feels so right and i i did provide uh leo pressland the concept for the cover but they just knocked it out of the park. They yeah. did such an amazing, amazing, amazing job conveying exactly the uh, the mood that I had in mind. They sure did. Continuing to talk about the this book, another thing that really struck me about it was the simplification of potentially really complex. Like when you start talking about battle tactics and, you know, you've, done all of the work up front this book is absolutely right up the alley of uh one week old players of D and 10-year veterans because you come at the same topic with an approachable manner that ends in a really good result regardless of your experience with D. i think unlike the monsters know what they're doing which really is aimed at every level of dungeon master live to tell the tale is more aimed at the beginning or intermediate player. Uh, Every player is going to gain some benefit from going back and reviewing the fundamentals and keep their characters alive in the face of the smarter, more highly evolved monsters they were going to run into if their DM (laughs) had the monsters know what they're doing. Uh, I think I've got a pretty good beginner's mind. I am pretty good at remembering what it was like to be learning something for the first time. 
And I've also had the benefit of watching my current main group of players as they were first introduced to the game and settled into it gradually and began to uh, gain a broader understanding of what they could do with their characters. That's that's really what I want to do. And that's what I try to do with this book is provide that kind of leg up, that that orientation so that players are not coming in completely bewildered, asking, what do I do? So that they can have some idea of the possibilities available to them and how to take advantage of those possibilities. Yeah. And I think that makes it a really powerful tool for those more experienced players that want to be that ambassador. Like it's a way for them to more easily communicate that stuff if they're, you know, not as experienced with education as you are. Hmm. One of the other things that kind of struck me, and you have a bit in the book about the lucky feat and the number seven. Can you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, lucky number seven. So if you're using the lucky feat to re-roll an uh, ability check or something, and the outcome matters to you, the rule lucky seven is just a mnemonic for the fact that if rolling a seven or greater would have given you a success on that roll, there's a natural seven on the D20. That meant that you had at least a two thirds chance of succeeding on that roll. And for whatever reason, you failed it. So it's basically saying if you had a two thirds chance or better of succeeding on this roll, um, then roll it again because your results should be a lot better the second time. You've got at least a two out of three chance of succeeding on that roll that you rolled the one out of three on before. Gotcha. Yeah. Like that right there is a perfect example of the simplification of something really complex. Like when you start talking about odds and likelihood and things like that, but hey, you know, if you want to take the lucky feet, just remember number seven. And like that is so simplified for a new player. And you have dozens and dozens and dozens of tips like that in this that really make it more of a resource manual to me. The one I wish I could have simplified further is uh, the decision when you're using the great weapon master or sharpshooter feat of whether to take the minus five penalty to hit for the plus 10 damage. Uh, there's, There's a little formula I give for that, and I wish I could have given something simpler than a formula but at least it's a formula you only have to calculate once. And then you, <laughs> you jot it down in the margin of your character sheet and you look at it when you need to. I want to create some PDFs that have all of these <laughs> formulas and tips on them from your content now. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant content. And that's why Jordan and I had to buy both the Kindle and the hard copy version because we wanted both. We wanted a quick reference and we also want that hardcover so that we can give it and loan it to new players uh, that are sitting at our table when they're starting to build out their characters. And I would imagine that we're going to be referencing it a lot. Right? It's going to be dog-eared all over the place. And that's the sign of a great book. Wallpaper. It's going to be our wallpaper. (laughs) We're going to wallpaper our D&D room in it. That was too much information. (laughs) (laughs) Where can the book be found for people that just listened to this? Anywhere that you buy trade books, so your friendly local independent bookstore, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, if you're in Canada, Indigo, wherever you buy books. Now, if you want to buy it through your local game store, game stores usually deal with game distributors. Uh, This one is a trade book normally distributed by book distributors but your store can order wholesale from Simon & Schuster Distribution. So let them know that if you want to give them the business. Right on. Absolutely. So now that you've got these two books under your belt, what are you going to be working on next, Keith? I cannot say exactly. Um, That is is to be determined in the near future. However, um, I do have a couple of Little bitty things up on the uh, DMs Guild. I've got a uh, Paladin subclass 
that I cooked up called The Oath of Deliverance. On, uh, on April 1st this year, I, uh, I wrote a spoof article on the Monsters Know What They're Doing called Pigeon Tactics. Um, <laughs> and then I created actual pigeon stat blocks to go with the pigeon tactics, and those are up on uh, the DMs Guild. Now, I've got a couple of other things that I'm working on for the DMs Guild that are going to go up there uh, pretty soon, uh, so you can watch for those. Very cool. And I think a much-deserved uh, break maybe is uh, is in your future. It sounds like you've been busy. Um, the, one other thing I am uh, working on right now is um, as a uh, as a supplement to Live to Tell the Tale, I'm creating a uh, a special little tactical guide for Beastmaster Rangers, uh, which have a reputation for A, being underpowered, and B, tying players' action economy in knots. So it's sort of a tier-by-tier walkthrough of what you can actually do with the Beastmaster as written to get the best use out of it. It's not a Beastmaster fix. It's not a Beastmaster overhaul or revamp. It's not trying to be the next revised Ranger. Um, But it is a guide to, if your group is playing the rules as written, here's how you can work together with your ranger's companion. I don't know exactly when I'm going to be done with that. I'm hoping it'll be sometime within the next couple of weeks. We love a great underdog. And uh, and I think that Beastmaster Ranger is a great <laughs> underdog. <laughs> Poor rangers. <laughs> well, you can follow Keith on Twitter at Keith Amon. As well as, of course, themonstersknow.com for the blog where you can get all the monster tactics. So you can... Also, thank Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And again, Keith, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to sit down with us and help us with our party. Thanks again for inviting me back. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. And, and I'm going to go games. build some Jordan cards.